You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome to this episode of The Bible for Normal People podcast coming to you live, well, was live, a few weeks ago when we were there, from the Wild Goose Festival. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. All of you out there, welcome to the Goosecast tent. As you probably already know, you are in the center of the universe right now. This is the real deal. Podcasting is such an important thing that's happening, you know, there's a real growth in it, really is uh, changing a lot of ways that people get their information and stuff, and that's great. But now, you have the amazing opportunity to hear the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Please welcome The Bible for Normal People with Pete Enns and Jared Bias. Well, welcome to the Bible for Normal People. Well, we thought we'd start with a little conversation about what the podcast is and why we call it the Bible for Normal People. What is a normal person? Why is that important? Pete is here to answer all those questions and more. Yeah, I mean, the Bible for Normal People, we just came up with that name, I don't know, in a dream or something, but normal people are just people who are like everybody, who aren't like professional academics or who aren't people who've gone to seminary or things like that. It's just people who have an interest in the Bible and in their faith and are maybe looking for different language and different ways of thinking about things because they sense maybe a change is needed and they need to know that there are many people out there like them too. So that's that's sort of what we're doing with the Bible for normal people. Well, I think to, to say the mission of like we spent a lot of our life around around really brilliant people who were terrible at translating that 
into everyday speak that everyone could understand. And so certain brands of theology or Christianity are actually really good at that, and others aren't. And some of the top scholars were doing really good work, but had no way to access the church or everyday people. And so we just said, man, we get all this stuff because we know them, or we read Mm -hmm. these books, and we've been educated in this. How do we kind of push this down to everyday people? And so that's really what normal people means, as opposed to academics who who can't. And it is is not easy. I mean, you can imagine it's not easy to find like high power professional academics who can translate it it's it's very very hard to find that and you know we have a lot of practitioners on too who have thought a lot about the bible like the gen hat maker we had on people like that so you know we we try to spread it out that way but yeah we try to sort of distill this is very subjective but the best of serious biblical study and scholarship in ways that people can maybe benefit from it and we try to do that as best as we can without using as much jargon or things like that. So, yeah. And that's a perfect segue to, so we have this uh, group of people. There's, I don't know how many there are. I should probably know that, like 60 or 70 people. We call it our producers group. And they give us feedback on the podcast. And one of the things they've said again and again, and we ignored it for a while, and then they kept saying it, so we finally listened, <laughs> is why can't you have normal people on the podcast? So today is the first time the inaugural time we're just having normal people Mm -hmm. on the podcast. So we've invited Rika and Paul to share a little bit of their story uh, about the Bible and their faith journey. And then at the end, we'll have some time for Q&A. So if you guys have questions, be thinking about that now, but not in lieu of listening to them because that's rude. So don't be writing while they're talking. (laughs) I'll watch. Don't be texting either. That's right. Well, you can't hear. I don't think you can text. You're not college students. Yeah. So that's what we're going to be doing is we have uh, Rika and Paul and we'll ask them a few questions and let them share some of their story with you guys. And then we'll have some time for Q&A for you guys to interact. So why don't we get started with that? So the first question for Rika here is, how were you raised to think about the Bible and how has that changed for you? And maybe before you answer that, just give like a brief 10 seconds of who you are before we do that. Hi, I am Rika Lively. I am from Tallahassee, Florida, uh, moving pretty soon to Phoenix, Arizona. And I am a seminary student at Islas School of Theology. So I'm currently getting my master's in divinity and not a biblical scholar at all. But I was raised in a wonderful family that was not very involved in the church. My mom was a believer and read her Bible occasionally, but not very often. And I wasn't taught to read it on a regular basis. It wasn't until eighth grade, I went to a Christian summer camp and I did an altar call and gave my life to Jesus and got a Bible as soon as I got home. And I read the Bible in a year, which was very exciting for me. And I you know, was patting myself on the back for doing the good Christian thing of reading my Bible every day. The idea of the Bible for me came from the churches that I attended and the Bibles I read. I had a girl Revolve Bible. Some of you are familiar with that. So it was pink. And uh, the commentary in there really shaped my own theology and how to look at the Bible. So for me, the Bible was inerrant. It was absolute truth. There were no contradictions in it whatsoever. And it was a guidebook and an answer book. And that was probably the most important part for me, being a Christian all throughout middle school and high school, is whenever I had an issue, I had a question about something, I was trying to figure out answers, I went to the Bible. And the Bible taught me everything I needed to know about life. Well, that changed. When I uh, started to really struggle with my sexuality, I started to have big questions about the Bible. I started to ask big questions about my faith. So I was asking questions about myself. 
And then I, so I started to notice like how people were using the Bible to treat members of the LGBTQ community. And it really broke my heart because when I read the Bible, I was like, well, God seems like love and Jesus talks about love a lot and doesn't, you know, I know there's kind of some scriptures in there about homosexuality, but I'm not really sure what they mean. And then I started to notice like, man, God seems really violent in the Bible and women don't really seem to be taken seriously in the Bible. And so I started to have a lot of questions like, wow, people of color have been hurt by the Bible. And so those questions led me to to different people who look at the Bible differently. And I realize that there's more than one way to interpret the Bible. There have been ways that we've looked at the Bible that have hurt people, and there are ways that it's been liberating. So for me, the Bible has changed where I look at it as a collection of stories, stories that are written over different periods of times and authors. For me, it's no longer an answer book, but a place to learn about my humanity and a place to learn about God and how to follow Jesus. So I've had a pretty big transformation. Well, in follow-up to that, would you say, you know, Pete has a series on his blog uh, kind of aha moments, like these points at which light bulbs go off. Do you have like a, a moment or a few moments or was it more of a gradual transition for you? I think my big aha moment actually came out of therapy, which I recommend to many people. (laughs) When I came out, my therapist gave me tons of resources. And uh, one of the people that he referred me to is Matthew Vines. Matthew Vines had this video on how to interpret a bunch of scriptures. So I watched that. And that was kind of my aha moment of, wow, I had no idea that you could read the Bible this way and that people were doing this kind of work. So I read a couple other books. And so then gradually the questions that I mentioned started to come in. So it was kind of both like I had the big aha moment and then that kind of snowballed into a long-term mm. period of questions. W- what about an uh-oh moment? I mean, because you mentioned those before, but like, what was what was the thing that you first said to yourself was like, I'd rather not be reading this right now. I can't believe this is actually in this Bible. Yeah, I think once I came out and I had some people that I really, really loved come at me with some scriptures and basically told me that, you know, I wasn't worthy anymore. And that was really difficult. And I said, this book isn't for me anymore. And I had a period of time where I just stopped reading. And more recently, I went to a leadership cohort with the Reformation Project, which we studied the Bible. And so I put down the Bible for a little bit. And that was the first time I got back into reading the Bible. And then I went to seminary. And so in the past year, I've started to have this hunger for the Bible again, where it was a book that shaped my whole life. And then it turned into a book that really hurt me. And then I'm starting to have this love again, where I go, I know the Bible is really, really messy, but there's still something that there's still something in me that wants to read it, that wants to use it, and that wants to learn from it. So I actually just picked up Inspired by Rachel Held Evans, and that's kind of been. I'm starting to take steps again to fall in love with the Bible in a new way. Mm-hmm. So I mean, not I, mean, I don't want to push you too far, but there's so many people have had this experience. So mm-hmm. at first, when you had that oh moment, I mean, were you angry? Were you? disappointed yeah what I I, I felt all sorts of things I was sad I felt really betrayed I think I think that's probably the best word I can use is I felt betrayed by the Bible and when it's been something that you've leaned on for so long it seems like a completely different book and I didn't know what to do with it and I mean, some of the things that kept me up at night was like, well, what if it's true? And that, that, that's another uh-oh moment. Like, well, what if, what if they're right? What if it's true? What if this Bible really is the thing that's condemning me rather than the thing that used to help me out of my problems? And so that, that you know, I, I did feel anger and probably just a lot of sadness. So before we turn to Paul, do you have a few words of wisdom or what lessons did you learn through this journey? 
Yeah. So for me, I, when I look back at those times where I was like upset, felt betrayed, and was very confused about the Bible, I've realized that those are still days of faith for me. Days of confusion are still days of faith where God has been present in my life. And so I don't want to put away that time as a time where I couldn't have learned anything or that it wasn't valuable for me because I'm starting to see the Bible in a new light. And because of that, I've learned so much about other people and I've learned more about the Bible. That's one of the reasons why I went to seminary. And so it's helping me fall in love with the Bible again. And so I'm, I'm learning that those days of doubt and days of confusion are kind of crucial to this whole journey that we're on when walking with the Bible. Yep. Have you any other questions? Nope. Nope. Hey, can we just give a round of applause? We'll edit it later, but yeah. for Rika, that's... We'll make the applause louder, like it's just a thousand people. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Sorry, I just went crazy with lots of thoughts on that. Right. Ideas. We'll talk later. <laughs> so, Paul, same pattern at least to begin with here. How were you raised to think about the Bible? How has that changed for you? Well, my name is Paul Wheeler. I'm a software architect. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was raised in the International Pentecostal Holiness Church, which is a very fundamentalist uh, denomination and very charismatic. My grandfather and my father were both pastors, and I actually thought almost the whole time I was growing up that I was also going to be a pastor until I went to college, and that plan kind of changed a little bit. I mean, you know, much like Rika, uh, it was very literal, inerrant. You know, the Bible was a rule book. It was like to be memorized, and then you would use these verses in almost like a weaponized way. That's how I saw what I was supposed to be doing with it. Or like little prayers that I would pray that I would be, you know, if I prayed these right things, I would be blessed. And our services, one thing that's interesting about, you know, Pentecostal denominations, the Holy Spirit is a very big component of our services. There was a lot of speaking in tongues and that kind of thing. It was almost like a caste system inside the church where you had people who were filled with the Holy Spirit and that was only evidenced by tongues. And there was a lot of pressure for us to be able to speak in tongues. I remember as, as a young person in these services where it was like, until I kind of reached that milestone, I was like almost like a second class citizen. I mean, I think it was very hard to take as like the preacher's kid. There was a lot of pressure in that area. One of the other big issues is that we were kind of on the Armenian side rather than the Calvinist side. You know, we kind of branched off of the Methodist denomination during the Azusa Street movement. And because of that, there's this idea of backsliding. So anybody who's never been in a church where that was a big component, you can imagine being like a teenage kid and, you know, you're filled with hormones and, you know, they're telling you, hey, if you get in a car wreck tonight and you've sinned, and you have unrepentant sin, you're gonna you're gonna go to hell. It doesn't matter if you're you were saved yesterday. Like, you know, if you've sinned since then, you know, you have a major problem. So I probably got saved, you know. I'm, I mean, I, I know I went down there every time they had an altar call. I, there was definitely something I was unrepentant of. For Before sure. you went out every Friday night, you made I, sure dude, to get re-saved. Well, it's like, you know, you're, you're a teenager, you're in church, and there's like, you know, cute girls everywhere, and, and you're just like a teenage kid. And it's like going to the service is part of the problem almost. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like everybody's all dressed up, and I don't know. It, it, was, it, was, it was crazy because all through that, you know, it's like I loved Jesus, and I felt Jesus loved me. But then there was this dichotomy where God, I feared. And it's almost like I saw them as two different entities. Like Jesus had saved me from the wrath of God. Like they were not one and the same at all. And that's, that's real. I don't, I don't know that anybody ever said that in terms of like the services I was in, but that's certainly what I walked away with during mm. that period. Yeah. So what am I now? <laughs> yeah, what are you now? Yeah, so now, I mean, now I think the label that I prefer probably most is mystic, only because I think life is a, is a, a beautiful, mysterious gift. 
I think I have the humility to say that I don't have all the answers. I don't have to have all the answers, which I felt like was so important earlier that it was all about intellectual assent. If you believe these things and you act in these certain ways, everything's good. Grace has definite limits. And so, so I like the idea of mystic. I like just the idea of an experiential faith that is a lot about who I'm becoming. And I, I judge my growth in the faith and in me as a person by the fruit that it bears. And so a lot of the things theologically that I cling to now, I kind of look at the fruit that it produces in my life. If I believe these certain things, is it producing the fruit that I want to see? And, and that's kind of, I guess, what I'm striving for. And one reason I listen to this podcast and others is to try to find out ways that I can kind of repair my view of the Bible and how toxic for me that was for a time where, you know, as a teenager, I was in the Royal Rangers. I don't know if anybody knows about that. It's because the Boy Scouts weren't religious enough. So our denomination had the Royal Rangers. And um, one of the badges was to read the whole Bible. And so I was like, I'll get that badge. And I should not have done that at 15 because, you know, I started having a lot of really serious questions. And I wasn't in an environment where questions were encouraged. And I found that quite difficult. I've always been kind of academically minded and and all of that. So it was a, a really big challenge. So after that, I think I've tried to develop ways of looking at the Bible that are not so toxic and that I'm able to just almost like maintain my faith. It's almost like I feel like if I, if I read certain parts of the Bible, I did not know how to maintain the problems of the Old Testament to, to the way I saw Jesus and the way I felt like call, Jesus was calling me to be around like LGBT issues and other things that just the church didn't seem to have good answers for, for me. Mm-hmm about how to understand the scriptures that are in the Bible. So so kind of going through that journey, you started one place, you ended another place. How did your family relationships, like what was that journey like <laughs> for you? Well, I mean, my parents are both extremely conservative still. And it is it is a huge, absolutely huge challenge because um, my dad is now retired from pastoring. But, he, you know, they're both still very much in that vein. How do I maintain the relationship? Honestly, I think we just kind of have certain boundaries that we don't talk about. You know, they voted for Trump, and I have obviously some problems with that. (sighs) The thing is, I know in their heart that they are doing the best they can with what they have and what they understand. And I think for me to try to challenge them from my point of view now would honestly be discourteous, disrespectful. I mean, (sighs) I'm going to say it this way, and I I don't want to sound bad, but I feel like I'm in a certain kind of maturity in my faith. And I feel like for me to try to attack where they are and try to get them to where I am is a disservice to them. Yeah, you've um, had experiences they haven't had, so to speak. Right. So, and right, so yeah. I, all, all I can do is just, I, I know that they're doing the best to, with what they have, what they've learned. They both have like a faith that's healthy for themselves personally. I think there's certain views they hold that I feel like are toxic for other people. But honestly, unless they ask me direct questions, I just love them. I spend time with them. And I don't try to push their buttons. I know the topics that are just going to lead to both of us being upset. And their relationship's more valuable to me. As people, they're valuable to me. And for that reason, I just try to stay away from those things. And, and I don't feel like it's my job necessarily. Mm-hmm. Other than if, if things do come up, I'll just say, you know, here's maybe a perspective you haven't seen. Here's a story of someone that I know. Mm-hmm. You know, so I try to go to go, I go to deliberately to churches that are you know poor people go to that are, are inclusive of groups that they so that I have stories. So if they you know if they say oh here's how I feel about you know this person, I can say well I have a friend that I know and this is their experience and this is all I can you know rather than trying to argue doctrine and try to say well here's you know here's what the Bible says or, or try to give them a verse instead of give them a story or an experience that someone else has had. I said, I have to make sense of this. It's, you know, it's part of my experience because I'm now in relationship with these people. Mm-hmm. So what would be some of your lessons that you've learned? What would you want to share? <laughs> so many things. I think 
if I looked at how I grew up with the Bible, it was very much a the denomination saw the goal of being a denomination as we are describing what the box that contains God looks like. And you better stay inside of it. And here's what the walls are. And don't cross any of them. And I feel like now my faith is very much a Christ-centered. So it's more like a little circle with Jesus in the middle and lines just going out in every direction. And I think that's kind of what governs my life now is that I just want to be in the world the way that Christ is in the world. And to some degree, like theology in terms of like arguing that stuff has become secondary. And I'm more about how can I live in a way that... I feel like Christ is calling me to live that is centered on the person of Jesus rather than just memorizing a bunch of Bible verses or, or doctrines or whatever. One practice that's been very important to me is centering prayer, uh, meditation, where rather than when I was raised, you know, it was so much like, here's have the flowery prayer, here's where to talk to God, here's how to ask for all these things. And, and I think that's something we should do because that's a way of us thinking about those people and honoring you know, people in our lives who need prayer. But also, I just sit. You know, for, I mean, for me, I try to sit at least probably twice a day for 20 minutes and I just hmm. sit and I, I do visualization a lot of times. So I'll just, I may just envision, you know, a burning bush or Jesus on the cross or just some of these things and just kind of sit with them or even just an idea of like joy or whatever. And I just sit for 20 minutes and just let God speak whatever. And I don't have an agenda. And sometimes I hear nothing and it's just hmm. a peaceful time that I just kind of can recuperate and relax and kind of center myself. And other times I've had, you know, mystical experiences where it's just been incredibly powerful and in ways transcendent that I couldn't describe on, you know, in five minutes. Good. Well, thank you very much. Can we give Paul a round of applause yeah. for everything? So before we do some Q&A, I just wanted to relate a story because something resonated with me about the idea that not being able to speak in tongues was like a second class citizen. And my family, I don't know if I've shared this on the podcast, but my family went to the point that my dad grew up in Texas, Southern Baptist, and my mom is charismatic. So my grandmother's itinerant Pentecostal preacher. So she would travel around in a van and do ministry and things like that. So came from very different backgrounds. And the compromise that my family came to was... I would be raised Southern Baptist, my sibling and I, until we were about the age of 10, so we could get the spiritual basics, and then you would graduate to being a charismatic whenever you were able to like be filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. So they always said that the refrains that come back to her, like my mom, were like, well, the Southern Baptists are really good with the Bible and the basics. Like They'll teach you the foundations in Sunday school, so we're going to do that. So it was a very intentional thing, and then graduating to being a charismatic when you're like 10 or 11, and then waiting for that experience of being able to speak in tongues so that you could be like a fully mature Christian. So, yeah. So, thanks for re-traumatizing me. <laughs> Paul, Paul, did you ever speak in tongues? I had experiences that, to me, was at least a close approximation. Okay, yeah. So, I, I did kind of graduate into that mm -hmm. arena, but I always felt a little dishonest. Right. I, I felt like I was trying. In other words, I wasn't like, I wasn't trying to experience God and it was happening. I was trying to speak in tongues. And I was kind of forcing it to happen. And I feel like if it happens, it really should be a byproduct of some deep form of travail in my spirit rather than I'm trying to do this just for the sake of doing it. That's where I land now, at least. Mm. Yeah. But it is still part of my practice. It, it, not all the time, but sometimes it hmm. happens. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. 
I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. We're sorry to interrupt the podcast, but we want to take one minute to mention two simple ways to support the work we do with the Bible for Normal People. First, head to iTunes, rate us, give us a review. That really helps us out. Secondly, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com front slash the Bible for Normal People, where you'll find ways to jump into the community, join the discussions that are going on, and offer your support at various levels. Last but not least, we want to give our deepest thanks to some of the members of our producers group. These folks give us a lot of feedback through email, calls, and overall just help make the podcast what it is. So thanks to Chris Abbott, Joshua Quay, Gwen Stratton, David Black, Linda Davis, Alyssa McCarnas, Rachel Emery, Wayne Bartell, Julian Scott, Linda Irene, Phil Spawn, and Louis Schofield. We couldn't do what we do without you, so thanks so much. Now back to the podcast. So we want to have some time for you guys to ask questions. These guys are going to stay up. And if you have a question for them, feel free to ask it too. Not to put you on the spot. We kind of said that wouldn't happen, but do it anyway. So they're good. They're strong. So we'll use yeah Pete's mic so that yeah we can do that. But give it back to him because he's going to... Unless it's related to Arrested Development or The Office, Pete's going to answer it. So I'll talk about Arrested Development. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyone have a question? Something that I've been working through lately is in my process of deconstruction and learning is how to feel about the people who taught me things that I feel were hurtful to me or are hurtful to other people. And I was wondering from all of your stories, it seems, you know, family relationships, whether, you know, community, there may be theological differences, but just your own personal experiences of being hurt by people who probably meant well and care about you deeply, how you've dealt with that. I can, I can start partly because you don't have a mic yet. 
Now I do. But I, I mean, I was really important for me, I think. And coming to a place where I went through a, a, this transformation as a pastor. And so I took very seriously my charge with other people who were in different places on their journey and didn't feel like it was my place as a person of power to sort of inflict that on other people. And so in some ways that helped because I had to be very careful about that. Um, but I think you're, the word you used, which was well-intentioned, was really important to me. And similar to what you guys shared about they did the best that they could with what they had. And so I actually developed a, a deep compassion and actually a respect and honoring that they gave me what they had and understanding that from their intentions, they were passing on a legacy of spirituality in the way that they understood it. And it was never malevolent and it was always meant to mature and to develop. And that's what they were given as the tools to do that. And so I don't, I don't fault them for that. And I, I think personally, if I'm being really transparent, I think it's a very different reaction to people who I felt like were not well-intentioned and used it as weapons or as places to, or as a rhetoric to keep their privilege and keep their power and to stay in charge and to harm people and keep them down. I have a very different response, not as much compassion. Maybe I should, I don't know, but I have very little compassion for that. But the people in my family, my grandmother and my mom and the people that even in the congregation who would have been in their seventies and eighties and, and held to a certain theology that I didn't necessarily agree with, but wanted to respect because for me it was about the fruits and they were loving the best that they could. They were trying to be inclusive in the best way they knew how and didn't feel like it was my place to shut that down, but just to encourage that trajectory of saying you're on the way and saying it wasn't a binary either or it's there on the way and respecting that and encouraging whatever that next step might be. So that'd mm -hmm. be my... Yeah, I, I think that's a very important question that you're asking because, you know, I have college students and this happens regularly where just by sort of paying attention to the Bible and talking with classmates who might have been raised differently than they were, all of a sudden they, they get angry really quickly and they feel like they've been lied to. And and like Jared was saying, I, 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 tell, I always say the same thing. You weren't lied to. They did the best that they could. And your job is to not hold on to the anger because that's just a bad place to be. And you can make decisions about how you want to go forward. But, you know, find something about the past that you're thankful for that has brought you to this place. Unless there's real evidence of people being malicious, which happens a lot. But if they're just like normal people who are doing the best they can with their faith and trying to pass that on. And the worst thing you can do is try to recreate your own experience in other people. Because that's not going to work either. You know, they have to get there on their own. But it, it's all about, I think, letting go of the potential of anger and hatred towards other people. It just consumes you. And then you haven't really left. You're still fighting that battle. Don't make it a battle, you know. It's Did you guys have anything you would want to add? You were free to say no. So the question was, like, how do you deal with uh, people who have taught you one thing and it's been hurtful? How do you get past it? Yeah, I mean, for me, I was very dependent on those people, dependent on, like, their approval. So at least in my personal experience, I had to realize that, like, I don't, like, I don't need their approval to learn new things, I guess. And I think exactly what Jared and Pete have said is that, yeah, people, I think sometimes are a product of their experiences and what they know. And sometimes you just have to meet people where they are. And again, I think when it's toxic and purposeful and intentional, then that's a little bit different and you have to approach that differently. 
I just want to add one thing because I think it's also a perspective of a deep sense of gratitude to recognize that they may have taught me a certain way, but something about how I was raised or the experiences I had led me to where I am now and being grateful for whatever it is that they instilled in me that led me to walk the journey that I've now walked. So Hmm. good. Other questions? Yeah. Go ahead. So an atheist and or humanist comes to you and says, should the Bible, what, what does the Bible hold for me? What are some of the gifts and should it matter to me? What's, I'm interested Excellent. in your responses. Why do I feel like this is not an abstract question? <laughs> and, um, I think that's a very hard question to answer because I really think fundamentally the Bible is a book for the church and for it is for people within faith to engage with all the struggles that are there with all you know the violence or this or that is to really work through that and to work out their faith by struggling with the text i think the bible in a i mean you know i get into trouble for saying this in some circles but i think the bible is a horrible evangelistic tool i think people are wonderful evangelistic tools and and jesus right but just I don't know what the Bible holds for you, but what you want to sort of... I mean, um, this comes up with my students all the time. I tell them, you've heard the saying, you know, be careful how you act. You may be the only Bible people ever read. And I say, it's worse than that. You may be the only Jesus people ever see. That's where the focus, I think, should be. And it's not about cracking open a book and saying, here's what it has for you. It's it's what does God have for you? And and we engage with this. But I think the Bible has to come in later. I, I just... Maybe that's really impractical, but, you know, I mean, I might want to engage them and say, okay, what is it about, is there anything about the Bible you might want to talk about? Because there could be a story back there about this passage or this idea that's really now being covered up with an overly intellectualized question. They might not have always been atheists or humanists. They might have been something else. I don't know. So, you know, I think a lot depends on the people that I'm talking to. Can you build a time machine and go back and... The only only thing I would add would be, it makes me think of, when I was a pastor, I I had the opportunity to lead a skeptics class. So it was a a large congregation of maybe three or 4,000 people. And so there would be a lot of atheists who would go because it was a good family thing to do on Sundays, but they didn't, they hated sitting in the service. And I was a pastor there and I also hated it. So I was given, no, I'm just kidding. In case the old pastors at that church are listening, no offense. But I was given the opportunity to lead a class called Four Skeptics Only and we would actually kick Christians out and you could always smell them because they were they asked the worst questions so it was like the most nuanced ridiculous questions that were like gotcha questions so we'd kick them out and then we had a, we had like a 12 week class where we just basically sat around and, and talked with them and they would ask that question of like what what's the point of the Bible why do we do this and then we would engage in a conversation similar to what Pete was saying was like well why do you think that like just tell me more about your experience with the Bible and at the end I was able to share like that conversation we just had was the point that's what it can do. It can lead to really good conversations where you and I can connect. Even though we don't share a faith background or belief system, we had a really good conversation about what it means to be human. And that's what great literature, Bible or otherwise, can do for you. And the Bible is, is kind of the, the, the number one product of that in our culture. And, and so, anyway, that's, that was what made me think of, yeah. Others, yeah, he had his hand back up there, yeah. I'm uh, 65 years old. And, and I've spent a good part of my life, probably at least 40 years of my, at least my adult life, studying the scriptures and, and um, went to a very fundamentalist evangelical church. I guess my question is this. I'll simplify it. 
Um, Can you build a time machine and go back and... Uh, yeah, that would be one, but no. That's no, season um, three, I think, of the <laughs> yeah. podcast. More so, I mean, there, I still, there's still times where events come up, people come into my life, and I'll get flashbacks of a scripture verse that's, you know, I had to memorize ten times, and, or passages of scriptures, the way I still look at them. How do you work through it, I guess, is my question, as somebody who's, like, spent 40 years doing it. Yeah. I don't know. I might be the only person close to your age. But, I mean, I, I can... My own experience is not yours. I didn't have 40-something years, but I did have, you know... Well, I, you know what? Actually, I did. That's right. Mid-teens. Oh, gosh. I'm having a therapy session right here at Wild Goose. Anyway, but um, I, it's, th- what was what is been the most important to me is just coming across people with a different voice and that starts seeping in and it has the ring of truth and when those flashbacks come you have something else to sort of engage that voice from the past and say you know it's it's sort of like what therapists say you know when when um you know children grow up and they de- develop defense mechanisms to get through life because their parents are alcoholics or something and they carry those into their adult life and it just becomes dysfunctional you know you have to at some point say this did something for me at some point in time thank you but moving on and and making peace with it and not thinking that you always have to justify yourself to those voices. I mean, that's that, this is a form of trauma, frankly, you know, and, and I think it's very, very difficult. But for me, I, I talk to myself about it. I just, I just remind myself, no, of course, you know, I'm the only one who listen to me anyway. So, um, you know, you just, you, you, you just keep talking. I mean, preaching to yourself is not a bad way of putting it and reminding yourself of those other truths that you just know are life-giving and better. And to engage that past, not so much as the enemy, but as a dysfunctional child. So there's the therapeutic dimension. I'm not saying go to a therapist, even though it's a great idea, but it, there's, a, there's that therapeutic dimension where you have to calm yourself. Yeah. Go ahead. A lot of churches use the phrase, we take the Bible seriously, but not literally. Okay, so I'm using that to, to frame my journey, which is similar to these folks here. I was raised with taking the Bible seriously and literally, okay? I moved away from the, the literal, but I kept the seriousness, as, as these folks have also testified. So my question is, do you have amongst your audience people who were raised with basically the view of the Bible as you, know, you and we see it now? Can young people grow up in a progressive church and really get the seriousness without the power of the, the literalism. So I have, you know, grandchildren that are growing up in a fairly progressive church. So they don't get this fundamentalist literalism at all. And I'm wondering, are they getting the seriousness? So that's just, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I mean, they get the, are they missing the seriousness? Right. Can I just say that's a great question? It is a great question. I, really I mean, question. I think if I had to go, I could go back and raise my kids again. I might not screw it up quite as badly as I did. But yeah, I, I think it's a great question. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, 
Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. I think, it, yeah, I think it, not only is it possible, I think it has to be possible. I just don't know how to do it. And because there, like, it's easy with children who are very concrete for literalism and seriousness to be almost equated. It's very easy to do that, and that's an easy thing to sort of fall. And in fact, it might not be a bad idea. When Richard Rohr was on our podcast, he basically said that. He said children need concrete ways of thinking, and, and so you, you just do that for kids. But if you maintain sort of a culture in the home and in the church you go to of the normalness of asking questions and of changing your mind about things, it might make things a little bit easier. It's a way of sort of getting that seriousness, but not the fundamentalism that comes along with it, right? Because, I mean, an eight-year-old is not on the spiritual journey engaging these difficult texts of the Bible. So what do you teach them? I mean, my view is you sort of start with Jesus and you end there until a certain age when they can handle some of the bigger stuff. But I get that because you have kids who grow up, I've seen this, in progressive churches who grow up and they don't have something that you would call a Jesus connection. On the other hand, you have kids who grow up in the serious and literal camp who chuck it all out by midterms of their freshman year of college because it doesn't make sense anymore, right? So, so maybe the whole discussion has to be reframed a little bit to an experiential emphasis on the Spirit of God and having that modeled in the home and letting the Bible sort of come in in some other way, rather than that being immediately at the outset the focus of discussion, how are we, are we going to be literalists or not, because everything depends on that. Well, both can screw up pretty badly. 
So two years ago, I, I led a church on a retreat about the Bible, and it was my first experience with a church where they were like, now we want to be really clear, we're not asking you to like take us from like a conservative place to a more progressive place. We're all asking the question, why even, why does the Bible even matter? So it's my first opportunity to kind of look, I was like, well, okay, I don't have that one in the bag. I'm going to have to rewrite this script because I had taken churches from more literal, serious to a more progressive maybe stance, but they were like, no, we're progressive. But now we're kind of like, we get up and read the Bible and we're like, we don't get it. Like, why do we even do this? So can the pastor ask me, can you help the congregation understand why the Bible is important and why it even matters? So that was an interesting experience. And I think through that, the only thing I I would add to what Pete said is not to underestimate the power of modeling things. We kind of in the West, we get it in our heads, like we got to be didactic and like teach our children how to take the Bible seriously, but not literally. But I think the most powerful tool for that is for parents to take the Bible seriously, but not literally. As a dad of four young kids that like they're going to do whatever I do and not whatever I say. So it really doesn't matter at that point what I say. They're just going to model what it is that I do. I think having a congregation full of adults who have walked that journey and have figured out how to take the Bible seriously, but not literally for themselves, will likely produce a generation of kids who understand how to take it seriously, but not literally. And that's been my challenge with my peers is like, we're a group of people who are like, okay, we walked through this journey. That's great. But we have no idea what to do with our kids at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know how to talk about it because it's still so fresh. But I think as we move along in that, it'll become clearer and we'll, we'll be able to model that. And I think that's important. So for me, it's just don't be so anxious about creating programs or being didactic, but learn how to live it, love it, you know, desire it for yourself. And kids will follow whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I don't like well, that. I, th- I mean, and also another angle on that, from my point of view at least, is... I just don't like the word conservative thrown in there when we talk about this because it's actually modernist and post-enlightenment rationalism. That's what we're actually trying to teach our kids. We just don't know it. And the conservative way of reading the Bible throughout most of the history of the church was allegorical or moral or, or yeah, literal, I guess, if you have to. If that's the only thing you can handle, that's, might as well stay there. But there are other levels at reading the Bible. And that was like sort of the, the, the word of the day for more than a millennium. And then the Reformation came and changed stuff. But even there, you know, there are spiritual readings of the Bible that Protestants advocate. And, and, I, and I think, you know, the conser- to, to equate a conservative reading with a literalistic reading is the classic modernist move, which is why liberals and fundamentalists hate each other and why liberals win that argument every single time, if you're going to be a modernist. <laughs> if you're not going to be modernist, they lose that argument too. But, you know, that's, I think, part of what we're struggling with really is a bigger problem of just how we conceive of the nature of reality and of knowledge and all that sort of stuff. But that's a great tactic, too, for people who, I think a lot of, they want to hold on to a conservative reading of the Bible, a literal reading, because it's like, that's always been done, and we're afraid of what happens if we don't. And to even point out some of those historical realities of like, well, for a thousand years, the church really wasn't all that interested in a literal reading, and the church did fine, can actually help people's fear and be like, oh, really? Maybe I don't have to have my hackles up thinking that if we change this, the church will fall apart. Well, for most of history, it was fine without that kind of literal reading being the preeminent Going back to Paul. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Who was a highly spiritual reader of scripture. He wasn't like, let's defend the historicity of this and there's one meaning to it. He just went like, I'm going to go in this direction. Good. I want to get to your question. Yeah. Sort of relates to these last couple of questions. I 
just just so you know, I'm a minister. I have an MDiv, uh, and I say that because I think that one of the great failings of the churches that I have known throughout my life. I mean, I I grew up in church and and learned many Bible stories. Learned learned the Bible pretty well in a progressive atmosphere where I could ask questions. But one of the things that I think that we miss out on is teaching the history of how the Bible came to be. And I've seen people get to seminary and they find out all this stuff. It wasn't God whispering to Moses. It wasn't the way they thought and it and they've left seminary. Wait, wait, it wasn't God whispering to Moses? Sorry. Uh, anyway, but you know, I think that's just an important thing that, that churches need to do, that, that we need to do, is to teach at appropriate age levels how the Bible came to be. You see, I, I agree with you, but if, if you do that, here's the danger, right? Then you, when you get into history, you get into humanity and people and anthropology and how people think and how religions collect texts, and then you take all the authority and the power away from the Bible, right? But that might be the lesson that that's, maybe that's not where the authority and power reside. It's a witness to the authority and the power. But that's why, I mean, it's, that's a big hill to climb for a lot of people, right? Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I bet you do. I'm going to go back about four people and say that when I was a kid, I was ADD and went to church. And therefore, I was always in trouble. One of my Sunday school teachers, when I was probably about eight, told me I was the devil. And that really pops in your head frequently, and especially in a surrounding like this. So Mm. I just thought I'd throw that in there for you to think about that. Wow. Thanks for that story. Yeah. She... Yeah. People say stupid things. <laughs> That's the new title of our podcast. People say stupid things. That's a different podcast. <laughs> you could do that one. Not really. As someone who graduated from an evangelical mega university with a degree in worship, how does your journey in faith and scripture and theology inform your view of worship, the practice, the history? Another good question. Yeah. Do you want to take a crack first? Yeah, I mean, unless you want to say something right away, I'm fine. I can t- oh, let me tell. Oh, I'll say something. I think for me, again, I can't speak for everybody. I'd like to, but I don't think I should. No, I won't do that. I'll do that later. Um, I, th- I think what all this has done for me it has deconstructed the performance notion of worship that I think is very common, and that maybe you learned. I don't know at, at your Christian mega university. I have two or three in my mind, and it's it's really driven me to more of that mystical sort of side of things where I just, I'm, I'm just letting go of this control. I've come to appreciate and participate in liturgy over the past 10 years, mainly because the sermons are 12 minutes long and I'm home by 8.30 in the morning if I go to the early service. All my friends are leaving for church and I'm already, anyway, that's the reason to do it. But, you know, it is the reciting of words instead of having to make them up. And it is not reinventing the wheel every week. I like the fact that the Episcopal Church I go to, the right one service in the morning, which is 745, they don't care if there are 10 people there or 50 people there or 100 people there. This is what they do because there are people in the church who benefit from it. They're not thinking about numbers. What can we do to snazz it up, you know, to make it happen? So, yeah, I guess, and I'm also, I have to say this too, I've also become very, very tolerant of different modes of expression of worship because different people are in different places. Not everyone's in the same place. I'm where I am because I had, I would have gone crazy 10 years ago. I had 
had I not made some sort of a change, you know? So I guess, you know, the experiences and having thought through this stuff have, have made me think very differently about what that even means, what worship even means, right? I, I, would, I would actually just add to that because I, I would say it very similarly, but for me it's been seeing worship even outside the church and in that context. My wife really helped me with this because if my Christian faith had to be based on like mental assent, I think you mentioned that, Paul, to certain doctrine or belief, it would be really difficult because I entertain all kinds of thoughts, which is partly what happens when you get trained in philosophy, because that's what you're taught to do, is entertain every belief and then figure it out later. So, if that was it, that would be really... So, worship for me became about, and my wife was really good about this, because she's very grounded in these things, about practice and embodiment. And so, all these things that for, as an evangelical growing up, were identified as kind of worthless, like kind of important, but we don't really know why, like ritual and tradition and these things that were sort of add-ons. Well, the real thing is you believe, and then we kind of add these other things on. For me, became flipped around. Like the, the core and center of Christianity is worship, which for me is embodied practice. Mm-hmm. And then the beliefs are kind of bolted on here and again. They change, they're transient. But what doesn't change, and the best way I can s- sum it up is that I'm committed to showing up. That's it. So I show up to a church every week and have a community of people that believe on my behalf when I don't believe, that help me through things when I, when I need that. But also then at home, like we practice like Sukkot and these things. So we invite friends over and we build a sukkah together. And then we read passages every night around welcoming the stranger with all of our kids and we have a meal together. Like that for me is now worship. And it is what it means to be a Christian. So it's been an interesting journey that when friends of mine... I wouldn't have understood this a few years ago, but when they ask these things, like, what does it mean for you to be a Christian? I tell that story and that's it. Mm-hmm. No, no, but what, no, but like, what do you, what do you believe? Like how, no, that's what it means. Um, I build a sukkah and we read about passages on how to be mm-hmm. kind and loving to strangers. That's what it means. So for me, worship has become way more central and not just this bolt on to the sermon practically or a scent of belief. Mm-hmm. So. But can I, I mean, just very briefly, I think it's a great question, obviously. It's, you know, the practice that Jared's talking about. I think, you know, I've heard this from many people, most recently from John Levinson, who's a, a Jewish uh, theologian, that when the mind starts to doubt things in ways, or you're just not sure, a lifetime of practice actually steps in and reminds you of something that's much bigger than what our rational minds can really get our heads around. We're talking about God here, folks, right? Getting our heads around. And that's the very thing, like, like Jared was saying, that's the very thing that was devalued in most of my Christian upbringing practice. Well, yeah, devotions every day, check that box off, but it's a different kind of practice, which is, it's a repetition. It's, it's, a, it's a way of getting habits into your life, which I still struggle with at my age because I wasn't raised that way, but I wish I were because it would make a big difference. You know, when, when the rational side doesn't do it anymore, what you have is this lifetime of practice that's involved. And that's, you know, Judaism is a practice more than anything. It's not a system of doctrines. It really is a practice. And they've been doing pretty well for the past, I don't know, 3,000 years are still here. You know, so. so in honor, I think, of, of St. Paul, who kind of ends his back and forth creative reading of Romans with doxology and worship, I think we should end there. Yeah, I okay. think that was a great question to end on. So thank you very much. And thank you guys for yeah, joining us. Thank you, us. people. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Good. And if we can, can we thank Rika and Paul one more time? Thank you guys so much for coming and sharing your story. 
So, yeah. all right. Thanks, guys. As always, thank you for listening to the Bible for Normal People podcast. Thank you for supporting us by downloading. Jared and I have a lot of fun doing this. And, you know, one of the things we talked about was creating spaces. And that was our vision uh, for Patreon and our community online at patreon.com front slash the Bible for Normal People as well as the website, thebibleforormalpeople.com or pdens.com, where we have these conversations a lot, and hopefully we are creating safe places. So if you want to check more into those, you can go to thebibleforormalpeople.com or patreon.com front slash thebibleforormalpeople. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. See ya.